Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind, and look, I know we're in the 90s, but you know what, for a year we're going to go back even further in time, and I figured the best way to start it is the 60th anniversary, am I doing my math right? Yes, 60th anniversary of one of the biggest, greatest comedies of all time, and then I figured, no, thanks to 63, why don't we just grab a few other movies from this time period and start working our way up, grab like four or five movies like we usually do, and then just work our way up from 1963 until we get to where we uh, ended at 1996. What do you think, Jacob? Sounds like a plan. Let's do it. I'm ready to get my groove on. All right. So this episode, we're starting off with the 60th anniversary of uh, It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. Irma La Douche. Douche? I don't know how to fuck it. Is it douche or douche? Irma La Douche. Irma La Douche. Yeah, douche. Uh, the Great Escape. And why have I forgotten what the other one is? Uh, Nighty Professor. Nighty Professor. Thank you, thank you. Um, all right. So, what are we starting off with? Well, let's start off with the greatest game. Let's get the hell out of here while we can, man. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> this this is a first time watch for me. Actually, three of these are first time watches. Um, I just went off the reputation uh, that they they seemed like they were. You know, you and I kind of like bounced out. You know, which ones should we do? Um, at first, I'm going to say this, and I know it's sacrilege, considering I think it even has a documentary about it called The Coolest Guy Movie Ever Made. I got real bored. Real bored. Uh, the first 20 minutes is really good, and then there's this lull uh, before they really start to plan the escape. That's fascinating, and then everything else from there is absolutely amazing. But I got to tell you, I was like 25, 30 minutes in, and I was like, oh, no, this is so long. Am I going to make it? <laughs> I right. I'm... Right, it wasn't as fast-paced as, you know, stuff like Lord of the Rings or um, Casino. Yeah, well, but... movies have changed so much over the years, too, so you, you're, the attention span now is rat-a-tat-tat, whereas then there was more patience. Oh, yeah, but it, it, it is kind of funny, because it, it's like people can binge-watch like a whole season of a uh, series... Uh, then, yeah, they should be able to sit through a three-hour movie. I know, I'm, but, yeah. I'm fucking ridiculous. But <laughs> I know. It's like you better have a lot of snacks. Yeah, so this is, ba- sure. this is based on a true story, and um, the, some of the elements were changed to protect the people because they were alive at the time. But during my little research of this, and I showed you, is that in 1988, they did a te- – not technically a sequel. It's called The Great Escape 2, but it's more of like a reimagining of the original story where it's a two-parter, and – the first part is now it goes back to the complete true story and, and the real names. And then there's a second part that shows you, um, you know, years later, some of the survivors of that camp go out. And their their mission is they hunt down all the people that were responsible for getting the rest of the people in that camp slaughtered. In the movie, they really downplay how many people were killed. I think it was like 13 or something like that. In real life, it was 57. Yeah. No, yeah, because we didn't really get to see all the ones that were executed, even though they did list uh, in the movie how many were killed. Yeah, and in, in the movie, what, we see maybe 15 escape at most, whereas in real life, it was something insane, like 426. Or it was like 76. No, I think it was really high. I have to look it up, but... um. Oh, dang. Yeah, well, in the movie, I know they listed it as 76. But, yeah... Uh, Again, just like the interactions with each character, like James Garner in particular was one of my favorites. Yeah, and this is um, him coming. That's for sure. He was coming off of um, uh, Maverick, and this was his big breakout. And he's one of the the few guys at this time 
that was able to launch a successful movie career, um, you know, coming off of a TV show. And I don't mean like some of the actors where, you know how in movies there's an A-list, B-list, C-list. And usually the guys that survived from TV were the C-listers. You know, they were the ones that like, well, this, you know, A and B turned it down, so let's give this lower budget movie to this guy. No, fucking James Garner was an A-lister. Maybe not top of the line like Steve McQueen, but he was really on the edge there. Oh, no, definitely. In fact, yeah, no, this is a whole, like, star-studded, you know, movie. You had Donald Pleasance, you had Richard Attenborough, of course, Steve McQueen, as you mentioned. You also had Charles Bronson. And, oh, God, James Coburn. Oh, no, you're right. I am very sorry. I misread all of this. It says 76 <sighs> escaped and 50 of them were captured and murdered. Yeah, I know. And we only got to see, like, three of them actually escape. Yeah. James Coburn in France, because of, thankfully, to the, you know, the French resistance. And then, um, of course, Charles Bronson and, oh, gosh, I forget, I forget what his name was. I, yeah, I don't actually know what the other actor was, uh, his name. Um, this is during a time. The character's name. There was just way too many to list. <laughs> there was. It was. There was a period where it was a little hard for me to track, and I think the reason why they cut down so many escapees is because it it would just be a, a five hour movie, and it would just take forever to you know to focus on all of them. And this is from John Sturges, who had just done uh, the Magnificent Seven, and he brought over McQueen, Bronson, and Coburn. I just, I fucking love this era where these guys are slowly growing. You know, they're starting to become really recognizable and then household names. Oh, absolutely, yes. Because, again, yeah, Steve McQueen's big break was Magnificent Seven, along with everybody else who'd been on that movie, yeah. besides Yul Brynner. Well, and, yeah, I think Bronson took the longest to become a household name because he got huge in Europe in the 60s, and it wasn't until Death Wish. All of a sudden, people are like, who the fuck is this dude? And Coburn becomes a star in, like, three years with his uh, James Bond comedy uh, spoof, um, Our Man Flint or In, Man, In Like Flint? I can't remember which one. In Like Flint, yeah, that's it. <laughs> um and the only thing that the only thing that I was bummed about is it's always mentioned like oh this is one of the greatest stunts of all time that motorcycle stunt and I saw it and I was like eh, that's it <laughs> I don't understand <laughs> but maybe oh, but the... oh go ahead I, but maybe it's just time and seeing so many more elaborate stunts years after that made me numb to it probably yeah I will say uh, again for its time I'm, I was still pretty impressed by it I mean. Just the whole chase uh, from Steve McQueen's uh, vantage point. Yeah, no, it was pretty intense. It's like, oh, God, he's just right there. He's right at the border. Just cross the barbed wire, man. That's all you got to do. Yeah. You know, what's interesting Ew. is they call him the king of cool, and I think the word cool has been manipulated so much over the decades that it, it means things it doesn't. And the reason why he was the king of cool is because he kept his cool. I mean, that's literally the definition. It's not like, hey, those shoes are really cool. You mean those bright neon? Those aren't, that's not cool. He was known for having a very level head uh, and, you know, in control whenever extremely dark situations would arise. So, I mean, that's, he deserves it. I mean, there's hardly any other actor out there that can really have that, that, that vibe, I guess, is what McQueen had. Right, oh god, especially on Magnificent Seven when everything he did would get under Yul Brynner's skin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's oh, a man. it's a sweat inducing movie because of the way that they God, the scene that makes Bronson flip out, it would make me flip out too, is being like I'm already claustrophobic as it is. 
and to have all that ground collapse on you and no one's there to save your ass and you got to climb your way out oh my god and it, it, it sent like chills up his spine he couldn't function anymore right and also again James going to James going back to James Garner his compassion for Donald Pleasance too yeah like he looked out for him even though everyone said he was going to be a burden because he was going blind uh, his vision was uh, debilitating yeah, I think this is the earliest I have ever say. seen Donald Pleasance. And even then, Donald Pleasance looks like an old thumb. <laughs> he, did, he did. He still did look old, like Angela Lansbury. They always just look old. Weird. Um, I know, it's crazy. And not really much else I, I can say about this. It's probably one of the better... I don't like prison movies, but these are a little bit different. Like... You know what I mean? Like the difference between prison movies, where it's like, oh, this is the this is where you're gonna get raped and shanked, and you know, and the the dirty uh, uh, Don't office. Drop the soap. Yeah, like you know that kind of stuff that's in Oz. I can't watch those kind of movies, but I can watch one of these kind of movies. And it's so weird that this led, like three years later, to them greenlighting Hogan's Heroes. I know it's pretty crazy. I mean, it did give off that freaking vibe. Yeah, it's like oh. Well, I mean, if you look at this, there are some lighter moments in it. McQueen's got a sense of humor in it, and I can just see them saying, well, what if we just tweak this a little bit more in this direction, and then, you know, we end up with Hogan's Heroes. I'm pretty sure that's probably how it went down. And you and I and both noticed the uh, the baseball scene. Whenever Steve McQueen's in solitary, he's always bouncing his baseball around, and it dawned on me, and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, Suicide Squad, the, the James Gunn version. Is that an yes. homage? What is the character's name that Michael Rooker plays? Do you remember? Oh, uh, oh my God! Why am I blanking? Whiplash? No, 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 not Whiplash. No, yeah, but it, it doesn't matter. Okay. But there's. It a, matters to me. I have to look oh. this up now. <laughs> yeah, but there's an opening scene in the new Suicide Squad where Michael Rooker is in prison. He's bouncing this ball around just like McQueen is, and I'm like, wait a minute, that has to be some sort of nod to it. Oh, absolutely. I mean. Again, the Suicide Squad is pretty much DC's Dirty Dozen. Yeah. Did you and find? Of course, it, it being oh. a prison movie, you know. Again, James Gunn growing up on, growing up watching a ton of movies. Savant, that was his character's oh, name. Okay, all right. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what the nod was too. Like Savant was probably trying to come up with an escape plan. Uh, the uh, what's the next film we're going to be discussing? The next one was a first watch for me. Um, Irma LaDuce with Jack Lemmon and oh my god why am I blanking on her name how could I do this Shirley MacLaine thank you um, for a minute there my brain disappeared too it's funny I you cho- <laughs> and, and this is one that you chose I'm curious what what led you was it Billy Wilder was it the cast or you just like flip a coin and just find something random I think it was just kind of find something land- random and looking at the list I'm like oh Jack Lemmon I do like Jack Lemmon, so figured what the hell. Yeah, it's it's funny as you and I discussed that somehow all of these movies are super long. Well, no, uh, Nutty Professor is short, but and the reason is um, is they were competing with TV so bad during this time, and that's when you started yes. getting CinemaScope and you know, Ultra Panavision and Technicolor, and, and movies were more epic. They're spending so much money. And they were really long. They're like, we got to give you more than what you could get on TV. And this is even before, like, TV movies existed. You know, it's like six years, I think, before the first TV movie. So they're really just competing with regular television. So it's interesting that they went this far in. And this, at the time, 
Um, yeah, Billy Wilder is red hot. Jack Lemon's red hot. So I can see them spending more money on this two, almost two and a half hour stage comedy. And it almost works. And the only reason I say that is because they probably could have trimmed maybe 10, 15 minutes out of it. it just, some of it just kind of drags on. But goddamn, if you love screwball comedies about a bunch of fucking idiots who just make terrible, terrible decisions, <laughs> but well-meaning <laughs> terrible decisions, you know? <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Yeah, I just think how the plot kind of revolves itself around a, a, a murder of someone who doesn't even freaking exist. Well, yeah, and and so it's funny as this is set in France and everybody's supposed to be French. Nobody has an accent. Nobody. Um, Some people might have a French name here and there, but that's yeah. it. Yeah, it's so funny. Is And it's one of these movies where they have a character named Mustache. That's it, just Mustache. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's all stage-bound. You can tell it's just one single set. And it's a neighborhood. And it's all about Jack Lemon falls in love. He's a cop and he gets disgraced by the most ridiculous means possible. But he falls in love with a lady of the night, I guess, if you want to call him. Uh, I don't like saying the word prostitute anymore. Uh, sex, worker. sex worker. Thank you, sex worker. Um, and he decides to assume another identity and borrow money to pay her so that she doesn't have to sleep with other people. But he's such a dumbass that not only does he first spend all the money having a party and celebration he forgets that he still owes that money back to his friend <laughs> and if it wasn't his friend i'm guaranteeing he would have got kneecapped oh yes definitely and so we like he sneaks out at night you know working the late shift like hauling all the meat fish like anything at the market all these odd jobs and then you know when she wants to spend the day he's there in bed yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, but we're, we don't. Did we mention the costume yet? The most ridiculous fucking Cockney accent, eye patch, and the silly, like, goatee or whatever. Right, 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 right. <laughs> that kind of. Oh. He, again, yeah, he looks so much like the penguin from the 1966 Batman series. Yeah, absolutely. And he he's having a fucking ball here, man. He is just absolutely destroyed. I know. I, I That's what I loved about it. <laughs> again, yeah. Growing up, I've always enjoyed Jack Lemon, especially from Grumpy Old Men, and of course, The Odd Couple, and again, uh, my fellow Americans. Yeah, he does. He only does the really slapstick stage kind of stuff for a couple more movies, and then everything changes once he does The Odd Couple, and then his career is like completely repositioned into something else, and it just, it was really fun. I mean, he was aging out, so I can't imagine he could keep doing these stunts. But God, it's a delight watching him. And then Shirley MacLaine bounces off him really well. He's got a really good cast around him. Um, I don't know who the really tall dude is who's the other pimp, but he's fucking hilarious. He's such a weird sleaze. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, no, especially when he's, like, trying to, um, again, uh, you know, show off those twins that he's, you know, now that he's no longer in charge of Shirley MacLaine or anybody else that Jack Lemmon's uh, overseeing. Uh, and the, and the and fight also, sequence. The fight sequence is so comical. Oh, absolutely! Like, yeah, he's 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 persistent, but as he, he's like trying to knock him out with like every object he can find or even his own fists, it yeah. eventually wears him down. It, it's I mean, almost again, it's almost like a Jackie Chan sequence. Pretty much, yeah. I, again, all these movies that we're gonna list and talk about, they all have like a Looney Tune quality to it. I mean. 
aside from like the fighting, all the little mishaps, the slapstick, and even the cinematography. Like again, these are these movies, especially this one in particular, bright, beautiful coloring all around. And I do love looking at it. And this this is based on a play, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's uh, a French play. Um, so I was reading Ron Howard's biography, and he talks about the Music Man, and he said back then these super bright, colorful, widescreen movies were overlit to pick up the colors, and it was so roasting as hot that everybody had to change constantly. They were pouring with sweat. That's, it is like being a part of my play. Yeah, that's, that's why for a decade there, the movies are so insanely bright. And then something happened, like, you know, the whole independent movement of the late 60s, early 70s changed everything. So it didn't need to be so super bright. Right, yeah, especially when they get filmed in an actual location. Yeah, well, now with digital, you can just tweak the color and post. Oh, absolutely. I mean, heck, look at the movie Babylon with all the lighting and everything and people being locked up in a camera box and yeah. how sensitive it was to pick up sounds. Yeah, I still haven't seen it. Oh. Um, so, spoilers, at the end of this movie, or towards the end of this movie, there's a whole other act that is so insanely cartoonish. Um, it's He has to get rid of the identity of the British man. And so, you know, he goes back to his normal self. And for some reason, through a weird turn of events, they think that he murdered the old man, even though he is the old man. He goes to jail for the most convoluted, stupid reasonings. And then escapes, and then he's on the run, and there he is. I mean, this this is a top, like, if you're going to put a list together of top screwball comedy scenes, the one where he has to dress as a cop and, and wander, wander around the room where they're looking for him is, ah, oh, aces. Yes, oh, God, even when he's, like, looking under the bed at the cop, like, right across from him he's right there yeah and he doesn't even realize it (laughs) yeah it's it's really worth uh checking out absolutely for me this is a classic this is definitely one of my favorite classic films now all right what is next next is 90 professor with jerry lewis now my familiarity with this was you know growing up with the eddie murphy eddie murphy version yeah and and he himself grew up with jerry lewis and they are I mean, if you boil it down, they are just a version of Jekyll and Hyde. But there's something so different about this one than that one so that they can stand on their own. And I've been watching some Jerry Lewis movies for the show. And I think the problem with most of them and why he really meant... He, he always sold tickets. They always did okay. But Nutty Professor is the big one for him. And that's because instead of his usual way of making a film... Uh, he did a full-fledged story. If you watch, like, Who's Minding the Store, The Family Jewels, stuff like that, it's like a Looney Tunes cartoon where it's just little vignettes. There really isn't much of a story. It's just, this is the plot, and it's just used to set up gags every five minutes. Nutty Professor has the gags, and they have scenes, but it's all driving, it's all coherent, and it's all driving to a, a final endpoint. Exactly. But, man, some of those scenes, though, those gags... Like, right after, you know, during his class demonstration, he causes an explosion, and then the dean uh, the dean wants to see him in his office, and the way he just sinks in that chair, yeah. he's just looking at him back and forth constantly, <laughs> it is. to say something. God damn it, it's so it's funny. Like, I don't know, I'm like, how many takes did they have to go through this? Yeah, and Jerry directed <laughs> this one. A lot of times he would hand off direction to, you know, one of his regular guys. Um 
Oh, I can't remember. The one they did, uh, I have to look this up. But there's one that he did that used to direct Looney Tunes cartoons, and he moved on. Uh, uh, hold on. Give me a sec. Keep talking. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Again, throughout this movie, yeah, I know. It's basically, you know, this professor, sick of being pushed around, didn't want to be, you know, the butt of a joke, wanted to be taken seriously. Heck, even his own student, like, picked him up and shoved him in a closet. <laughs> And as that happened, he just looks at the classroom and just goes, well, don't just do something to sit there. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't even ask for help properly after something like that. Uh, it's uh, Frank Tashlin was the director of most of his movies around this era, and he's one of those ex-Looney Tunes guys that got moved over to live action. Um, that would explain it. Yeah. Uh, so Jerry is the, this is, I believe, the first one that he directed, and he had power, man. He, it's so goddamn strange that he had this much power when his movies really weren't making that much money. But I looked at it, and he would get 40% of the profits. And after 30 years, he would retain the rights to the film. Now, he doesn't own the—they It's they said the film, but I think they mean, like, the, 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 the script, the sequel, or remake rights. That's how he was able to take a Paramount movie and sell it to Universal Studios— uh, for Eddie Murphy, ah. but a lot of people don't know that there's a Nutty Professor 2 animated movie about his son. Um, it was like 15 years ago that the Weinsteins put out. Huh. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, I don't know if it's any good, but it's just interesting that he was able to finagle such a deal. And um, I think he does give an absolutely wonderful performance here. For the longest time, he was still doing his, uh, you know, eh, like little kid voice. You know, the one that he did with uh, Dean Martin for so long. And yes. this is a big change in his career. After this, you're not, you're barely going to see that. Uh, he, he gets more and more mature as the films go on. Uh, I think in 66, or he does one with Tony Curtis called Boeing Boeing, where absolutely just a normal everyday human just doing a screwball comedy and this was necessary even though he does play a fucking weird dork he also gets to play buddy love and i think that's where the world finally saw oh he can be something different oh yeah absolutely as soon as he switches to buddy love and gets all cleaned up and cool i'm like damn that greasy hair Shit. though sweet fucking jesus that greasy hair that he has his buddy love and he would carry till the day he died Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Looks like a goddamn oil slick. I mean, if I had to, like, just butter my bread, and just run it across his hair. <laughs> and uh, that clearly wasn't Dapper Dan, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dapper Dan doesn't leave that much oil behind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I believe this is Stella Stevens' really first breakout role. Uh, she kind of, I think she was really good, and sadly, she didn't really have much of a career once the 70s came around, and she was just doing um, exploitation movies. But I like her a lot. Yeah, no, she was definitely, oh, she definitely gave off that angelic presence and, you know, assured him no matter what, even if it was buddy love or not, she still loved him. Although, I think she would prefer more of him as his regular self because he wasn't such a douche. Now, <laughs> she is in college, correct? He is a professor. For some reason, I got confused and I wasn't sure if it was high school or yes. college. Okay, thank God. Yeah, because if it was high school, hmm. I still want to punch buddy love in the face. What a fucking dildo. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else you want to say before we go to our final film? Uh, yeah, one, this is definitely one of the things that cements uh, Jerry Lewis's uh, legacy in comedy. The only problem, he never hit these heights again. 
I mean, within a few years, when his par- the second his Paramount contract was over with is when everything fell apart. He went over to Columbia and Fox, and all of those movies lost money, and they do. I've seen the last few, and they're not very good. Um, and then, of course, his infamous... What's that one? Um, the, cl- the Day the Clown Cried, the one that no one has still seen. I think we got two more years before we can see it. Huh. Do you know about this movie? Familiar. He plays a he plays a clown in a concentration camp in World War Two who's supposed to cheer kids up before they go into the ovens. Holy fucking shit! What an insanely bad idea. Not like Jacob the Liar. He actually tried to make it slapsticky or whatever. And when everybody saw it at the first screening, they're like, "Oh my god, this is a nightmare!" And then he just hid it in a vault so he would never. He bought his own film and he hid it away. Yeah, we're, we're going to see it in two years, though. We're, I'm very curious about it. Yeah, holy shit. All right, so our big grand finale is It's a Mad, 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 Mad... I think I got that. Mad, 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 Mad World, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Yeah, this is what definitely gave us Rat Race. This was definitely the inspiration for Rat Race in, like, 2000s. Yeah. Well, and there's a couple others like that. In the late 70s, there's one called Scavenger Hunt. One year later, we have uh, Midnight Madness with uh, Michael J. Fox and uh, the guy from American Werewolf in London. Um, And then there's one called Million Dollar Mystery. The only ones that are really good, though, are Scavenger Hunt, uh, which we'll watch when we get to the 70s, and a Rat Race. Rat Race, they said, was their version of It's a Bad, 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 Bad World. Yeah, I mean, again... Very similar plot, you know, just a group, a random group of strangers just cruising across the California coast. Notice this car crash, and when they go to help the guy, it was just some evidently a criminal who stashed away money. And now everybody comes in and wants to get a share of it. And all the hijinks that ensue along this, oh my god. I think the, the, here's the problem is the peak of the movie comes about an hour in. It's a really long fucking movie. So yeah. the, the version you saw was two and a half hours. I have the Criterion Blu-ray, which adds another half an hour. Um, oh. Uh, no, it's it's honestly, to tell you the truth, it's, it's not necessary. It's just filler. What happened was um, when the movie was done, they did a roadshow version. Um, and they, don't, they really don't do that these days. But it's where they travel around with one print and usually like the director, somebody goes with them to, you know, uh, host it and they charge more money. And so it was a lot of film. And they're like, well, we want a lot of screenings because this went way over budget. It was supposed to be six million. I think it cost nine. That sounds like nothing now, but it was a lot back then. Um, Oh, yeah, definitely. So they cut it down and cut it down or whatever for the, uh, you know, the the countrywide version. Um, But yeah, most of it is just like little... When you watch it, it was an old print, so you can tell the color shifts, and it'll just be like one line that's useless, or them just standing there for an extra two or three seconds. It really is just little bits and pieces, no full scenes. Oh, good lord. Yeah, so the version you saw is the best version, and, um, oh, what was it? I'm sorry, I completely lost my track of uh, thought. Um, an hour in, you get the best sequence, and that's the gas station sequence, which is just absolutely bananas. <laughs> It was like watching French Flintstone beat the crap out of Laurel and Hardy. The, uh, I, I, here's the weird thing is, I love the movie. I think it's really entertaining. I don't think it's that funny. I, you, I really don't laugh. I've seen it about four or five times now, and I, I just don't find it that funny. But I'm just in awe of the spectacle and the crazy stunts. 
Oh, God, yes. Um, in particular, the, what, near the ending when they're trying to catch the detective with all the money? And they're hanging off the, you know, fire escape on an old building that's going to be condemned, and then the firefighters have to come and rescue him. Yeah. Oh, it's, my God. <laughs> it's such a crazy sequence. And you can see, like, I mean, this is before, obviously, like, really good special effects. They try the best they can with the ladder and the bodies flinging. They're clearly just toys, <laughs> little dolls. <laughs> I got a kick. I still got a kick out of it. Yeah. Um, there's a really, oh, there's a really good sequence. Oh, let's go through the cast real quick. So Spencer Tracy is, I guess, essentially the star. He was the biggest name at the time, but he really is barely in the movie. They probably shot for like two, maybe three weeks. Um, I would say probably Milton Burl is the real lead. I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you, because his 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 sequence in, which is the a really funny sequence too, is when they're trapped in the shop. And they're trying to escape, and I, I, everything they do goes horribly wrong, and they keep getting stuck in there. Um, we have Sid Caesar, and he has a whole sequence. Wait, do I have these wrong? I do have them wrong. Shit. I'm sorry. Sid Caesar is in the in the building. Uh, Milton Berle is the one with the young, beautiful wife and the mother-in-law. And uh, look, there's two things in this movie that's going to test your patience. Ethel Merman and her constant yelling. <laughs> And the second is there's a sequence with Mickey Rooney and uh, Buddy Hackett where they're in a plane, and it kind of goes on just a little too long. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, God. Uh, oh, God, especially with uh, Jim Backus, you know, being the pilot, constantly getting drunk and then getting uh, himself knocked out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, Dick Sean isn't in much of this, but he's the hippie son of Ethel Merman, and I laugh my goddamn ass off with every single thing that comes out of his mouth. There's a sequence in this where they keep calling him to help. You, know, like, you go get the money. You know, you're already there. And all he does is dance like a lunatic while his girlfriend is like a robot and she doesn't say anything. She doesn't make any facial expressions. And they dance the whole fucking movie until like the very end. I can't stop laughing at it. Uh, yeah, no, seriously. That part was hilarious too. I mean, they were getting high, you know, so hey, that explains why she was so robotic. She was probably really stoned. Uh, but she could still dance. I mean, considering the standards in style of dancing from that decade. Yeah. Uh, Phil Silvers is in this is a little weasel who constantly like it starts off because he screws over Jonathan Winters. Um, now let me ask you this: I grew up with all these old TV shows on my low budget, you know, high channel numbers and Nick at Night. Dundee, do you know who most of these people are? Uh, yeah, Milton Berle, as you mentioned, Buddy Hackett, and uh, yeah, Mickey Rooney. I'd seen from like a lot of the movies uh, I'd watched as a kid, especially when he was a uh, he would appear in a Disney movie. Um, was it Black Stallion? Not Black Stallion. Not just Black Stallion, but also, oh gosh, something about the Phantom of the. Huh? Yeah, it was like from the. It was like from the. It was from the nineties. It was regarding the Phantom, almost like a play on uh, Phantom of the Opera. Okay, I, yeah, I think a lot of people know from like the Black Stallion or the Night They Saved Christmas. I think is one of them, um, which was a really popular TV movie. Um, but a lot of these guys, they were TV guys. That's how they got them so cheap, except for uh, Spencer Tracy. Uh, Phil Silver's course, was the original uh, Sergeant Bilko. Um, Jonathan Winters. Jonathan Winters is a weird guy that they never really found a place for. I think most of our generation probably knows him from, like, Mork and Mindy, I guess. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, he, you, you may not know him because um, in the last season of Mork and Mindy, they decide they're going to have a son. And when their son is born, he's old and he ages backwards. And it's Jonathan Winters playing a baby. <laughs> well, um, well, as far as... Uh... Oh, gosh. I'm trying to remember. Who was the one truck driver trying to ship out all... Uh... Who was the one who was driving the truck who had to like deliver stuff? That's Jonathan Winters, I believe. Yeah, Jonathan Winters, yes. I remember him from the first Flintstones movie. He was the one who handed uh, John Goodman the drink. Oh, okay. Like when they were on the bridge and uh, Fred was in hiding. Uh, yeah, so yeah, we've got Jim Backus, um, Andy Devine, which most people don't know. I know him from an old radio show. He's got one of those real high voices, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Peter Falk. Everybody knows him, Columbo. Yeah, it's uh, one of the uh, cab drivers. Norman Fell, uh, who is the neighbor on Three's Company. Um, we have the Three Stooges. Uh, they're only in it for a second or two. Uh, Jimmy Durante, he's the guy who dies at the end. Yeah, cha, 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 cha. <laughs> um, try, uh, Carl, Carl Reiner, uh, Don Knotts, Buster Keaton, Marvin Kaplan. I mean, this is just a murderer's row of, like, that guy. Yes. Yeah, you're pretty much uh, Leo DiCaprio in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just snapping and every person you recognize. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and in just like literally like a couple seconds, a cameos. We have Jack Benny, Jerry Lewis. Um, I, I think Bob Hope is in this. I'm trying to remember. Uh, I don't know. Is yeah, it, uh, no. Yeah, there were so many recognizable faces. Yeah. I'm like, holy shit. A lot of them to us are just, oh, that guy. You know, that kind of thing, whatever. But... It's so strange that Stanley Kramer even directed this. The guy's not known for comedy. He always did like these political, social kind of movies and for some reason said, yeah, I know what I'm known for. Fuck it. <laughs> and just destroys. I think maybe that's the reason why it wasn't funny because he doesn't know comedy. He just knows spectacle. Right. Oh, man. But, well, again, you have to give it to the actors for, I think, trying to bring as much as the comedic... Uh, performances as much as possible and yeah the mother-in-law oh god yes you just <sighs> wanted to shut her up oh my god duct tape <laughs> duct tape oh yeah and then at the oh god yeah the ending when they're all like stitched up and in bandages and you know upset about you know not being able to get all the money <laughs> i love how like you know again the detective's just like looking back is like i'm not this is not something i'm going to be able to laugh at you might you guys might, but no, this is not going to have any positive effect on me. And then, of course, Buddy Hackett, as he finishes a banana, throws it on the ground, right, for the mother-in-law to come in and slip on it. <laughs> it's like, yes, finally. Yeah, it's it's not a quick comedy. It is truly epic in every sense. And I, I'm still impressed that they had the balls to go through with it. And it was a smash. It played for years. You know, this is before video, and if it was a huge hit, it wouldn't go straight to TV. I, I believe in some countries it ran until the mid-70s uh, on the big screen. That's a long fucking Whoa. time. Yeah. Damn! <laughs> oh, good God. It definitely had to have made its money back. Yeah, well, it cost nine. Like I said, it went over budget, but it made $60 million, which is, God, what I don't even know what that is in today's money. That's American dollars. That's... That's like, what, six and a half times its budget. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was another hit that big until, um, 
I think Butch and Sundance made like seventy-five million, and you know that, that's that's nine or six years later. So yeah, wow. Good lord, Dean Keys. Yeah, I'm wondering what the first movie to ever hit a hundred million. I, I want to hear. I want to say it's Jaws, but I feel like Towering Inferno the year before actually hit a hundred million. Or I know Airport made a bunch of money too. Oh yeah, Airport. Then of course that's what gave rise to the movie Airplane. Yeah, influence to it. All right, so that is the end of this episode. We'll be back uh, in a couple weeks for 1964, and I think by then it's probably time for hiatus. Oh, yes. Break time from that, but not from actual work. (laughs) All right, everybody. Have a good one. And uh, Jacob, send us out. All right, everybody. Namaste. Good luck. Be excellent to each other. And have a martini, pally. (laughs) Yeah.